today I am joined by um, an assistant professor at Mass General Hospital. Um, her name is Anahita Dua. And welcome, Anahita. And would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, thank you. Uh, my name is Anahita Dua. I am a vascular surgeon indeed. Um, I've been lucky enough to actually just get promoted. So now I'm an associate professor at... Uh, Whoops, sorry. <laughs> no, no, please. Are you joking? Sorry. Oh my God. Even I'm not used to it. <laughs> uh, just got promoted. So that, that's really exciting. But uh, an associate professor at Harvard Medical School. And uh, I've been at Mass General now for four years. Prior to that, I was finishing up my fellowship at Stanford. And I, at Mass General, aside from vascular surgery clinically, I am the director of one of our vascular labs. I am the co director of our peripheral artery disease center and uh, the founder of the limb evaluation amputation prevention program at Mass General and the associate director of the wound care center and clinical director of vascular research. And I promise I also operate. (laughs) That's great. It sounds like you wear many hats from all of those positions that you you hold. So one thing I wanted to ask you is, so you're a surgeon, you're a vascular surgeon. And my understanding is that it's not very common for a woman to be a vascular surgeon, correct? It it is definitely becoming more common, but it's certainly not the norm. Um, The way that we kind of gauge it is we talk to our, our senior colleagues about when they previously had vascular meetings, how big was the room or how big was the table <laughs> that housed the women that came to those meetings for dinner? And, you know, it started out with quite literally one little table of four women and now has grown to about half the size of a classroom <laughs> you can get. Um, there certainly are a lot of women who are coming through the training programs now, but there's still a pretty decent lack of leadership positions um, though that is changing. And there are a variety of reasons for that. And it's not just in vascular surgery. You see it in some of the other subspecialties as well um, in the surgical field. So, you know, I'm always interested in surgeons and how they, how, how is it that, I often think of it, is it that you, you do your surgery, right? And then you go on and do the next part of your day. You know, it isn't like you do your surgery and then you go home. You're like, I'm done concentrating, yeah. focusing on thing that I have to do. But you sort of like, OK, I'm done that. And now I'm going to go to my clinic or I'm going to go and look at my research. How do you find that switch? Yeah, I uh, know. That's a great question. Actually, it's interesting. So, you know, when you think of a surgeon doing surgery, you know, in your mind comes a person with a knife doing something to a patient who's unconscious, hopefully, (laughs) and then, you know, it ends. But actually, usually that's when it starts. And that's usually the case for vascular surgeons, because after the procedure, that's when the patient needs to wake up. You need to not have any complications. There can't be any bleeding. Now they have to walk, then they have to pee, then they have to eat all these other things to get back to normal. And pre-procedure, you have all this stuff that has to happen before the patient is optimized for surgery in the first place. It's a little bit like, you know, if you're flying a plane, the actual flight is a portion of what happened to that plane before it could take off. There better be a good, you know, landing and and uh, set up for it to get in the sky. And in conjunction with that kind of philosophy comes these other pieces of what it means to be a surgeon. So for example, clinic is where you do the preoperative discussion, make a decision for surgery, um, and you know, communicate with the patients and their families. And then of course, postoperatively, you see them there as well. 
when you're dealing with academia, where you also have education, social service, and research as a pretty major part of your life, then indeed, you have to figure out when you're weak, what percentage of your day is going to which thing. And unlike a lot of other disciplines, you don't have a between nine and 11, I'm going to do my carotid surgery. Between 11 and one, I'm going to go to my lab. Because between nine and 11, your surgery may finish in an hour. It may finish in six hours because something happened. And everything else needs to revolve around that and shape shift almost to be able to accommodate so that you can achieve everything that you want to in the day. I myself um, have a research lab that studies coagulation and we are NIH funded. So that means that you know, I have postdocs under me. I have research people um, who, who work in the lab under me. And I have to ensure that they get the attention to help work the experiments so that we can do what we need to do to pay back to the community that gave us the funding, namely the United States people, because it's the NIH. But at the same time, I have residents who I have to let operate in the operating room. I can't just do the whole case because it's a teaching hospital and I have to guide them so that they can learn. And, you know, that means a little bit of a longer case, for example. And I have to account for that when I'm planning my day. And then, of course, with the social service side, I do run a, a clinic for patients who are afflicted by homelessness who are vascular patients. And it's not a, we're going to go to the patient on the street and look at your foot. It's very much a, hey, the next echelon, you need vascular care as identified by a primary care doctor. How can I provide that for you in a safe and you know financially set by a viable manner. And so I have to work that sort of into the day as well. And then with the titles that were mentioned previously, there's of course administrative duties. So the way that I've done it is I allow my day to take the, the course I am best expecting for that particular day based on what my achievements are for the day, which I know sounded like a lot of words. But what I mean by that is if I know, for example, that I'm running a Harvard course and I also have three surgeries, and I also have to ensure that I've got these residents who are in my lab, I will actually set the day up such that my surgeries will go first so that while my patients are recovering and I'm in the hospital anyway, making sure that they recover, I'm going to do my research stuff. And while I'm in between experiments in the lab or I'm talking to one of my postdocs, I am doing the administrative work on my computer for the Harvard Research Day. So everything is like a switch back and forth. And um, it is a, a style of life that I think I've finally been able to get some degree of a handle on. To me, it seems as if, you know, if I was doing surgery, that once I was done that because it's so focused, that I would be like done for the the rest of the day, you know, that, that in my mind, that's how I think, but I know that's not how it works for surgeons. And I guess it's something that you just get used to. You do. It's a lot like, I mean, this is going to sound kind of odd, but you know, I have, I have two children, I have a five-year-old and a two-year-old, and it's a lot like that in the sense that you no longer, your life is no longer driven by you and your need. In the case of children, you know, if my son gets sick today, and throws himself down the stairs, which is a thing he does, unfortunately. But like, you know, suddenly whatever plan I had for, you know, 5.30 that afternoon is over because he just did this. And I have to be very nimble and accommodating to ensure that he gets the best. And it's very similar when I think about patients, not that it's a maternalistic, paternalistic model where I'm their parent, but I am taking care of them. That's my job when they're in the hospital and their needs at that time are what structure my day. So, hey, I had a plan to do three surgeries today on a neck, 
and an abdomen and a foot. But my first patient, who was the neck patient, had a bleed. Well, crap. The rest of the day is scrapped. Must, you know, focus on this patient, get her, him through it so that they can ultimately have a good outcome. And that means I reschedule my other two patients, which means another day is going to change. And if I had a research meeting, that changes and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's easy in academics to get kind of fixated on the meetings and the admin and the promotions and the titles, because to some extent, that's why, you know, that's why we're here. That's what we're, we're, we want. But we got into this and we choose to do this because we are doctors. And so the most important aspect is patient care, hands down. And it's very easy to explain to the world when the patient comes first. You know, I call my husband, hey, I'm not coming home tonight because I had to go back and do this patient's um, XYZ or a family member wants to talk or something. And everybody sort of understands that. And that allows me a little bit of leeway to be able to do what I need to do. And so I think framing it such that it's not about your day, it's about their day, they as in the patients or the residents or the people that you're leading. Suddenly it becomes very easy to adapt, I think, and give 100% of yourself to whatever you're doing at that time. Okay. So I I think I get it. I still, it still, still feels so exhausting to me. (laughs) I mean, so uh, one question actually is like, what is a vascular surgeon? I mean, I know you're working on, you know, veins and arteries and stuff, but when do you come in or are you, is it sort of a specialty that you're only going to be working on somebody's, like you said, carotid artery or something like that? Well, that's a great question. So a vascular surgeon is a person that operates on blood vessels, whether those be arteries or veins throughout the body, except for the arteries that are in the brain. So kind of from the base of the skull up and the actual heart. Other than that, we operate everywhere. So it's an extremely diverse, challenging, but fun specialty. And the day can range from, because there are blood vessels everywhere, of course, the day can range from doing a vein case in the morning to doing a very complex aortic case in the afternoon to doing uh, carotid cases. And a lot nowadays because of diabetes of what we call peripheral or the legs essentially and limb salvage, trying to save those legs that otherwise would be amputated. And the beauty of vascular surgery is like in the 80s and 90s when there was a revolution in endovascular surgery, minimally invasive stents, wires, balloons, catheters. Um, The vascular surgeons really embraced that paradigm. And now we have a whole repertoire of open procedures where you're taking a scalpel and cutting on a person and identifying the artery and fixing it or bypassing it or whatever you need to do and endovascular. So stents, catheters, wires, getting a aortic aneurysm, for example, used to only be repaired by an open procedure. Now we can put a stent in there, decrease length of stay, decrease mortality, get patients off table faster. And so the beauty of vascular surgery is that you really can choose to hone down in one area. In our practice at Mass General, we have two vascular surgeons um, that are veins only. They trained as vascular surgeons and everything, but they decided to focus on veins and that's what they do. I am a vascular surgeon of everything. I do, and and I like it that way because I'm young and I want a nice diverse practice, but my research is focused on limb salvage and my focus um, as I move forward uh, will likely hone down on that because with diabetes again on the rise, there's a slew of patients that are coming into the medical system who are going to get amputated if we don't do novel advanced techniques to save their legs. Uh, but there, there is a common misconception that vascular surgeons, you know, I, I'll, I'll be at the grocery store or something and I'll talk to someone and they'll say, oh, you're a vascular surgeon and they'll bang out their vein and show me their <laughs> leg, which is fine. 
and I do do veins, but um, that's certainly not the only thing. It's a very small part of what we do. Interesting. And so the other, I feel, obvious question is surgery, from what I can tell, is a male-dominated field. It's sort of like when you're going on a plane. You know, the number of times I've flown, I don't know what the denominator is, but I know that the number of female pilots I've had has been two. Right. <laughs> you know, and the denominator, let's say, is, a, you know, 75, something right. like that, right? So that right. percentage is is pretty low. So, and I imagine it's not quite that low in surgery, but it's still a male-dominated field. So how how do you find that? You know, so when I came into surgery, I, I did my general surgery training first. So I'm board certified in general surgery, and then I went on to do vascular specifically. And I will say that, you know, I, I have a, a few female mentors that are just phenomenal that got me where I am today that, I mean, we call them old school, you know, they were there, the original, the OGs who like truly were in the room when men kind of had their backs to them. They weren't sitting at the table, you know, very macro level aggression towards their presence. And that because of them, obviously, and their their, their willingness to stick it out and, and pave the way I am here today. And things are different now in the sense that you don't have that macro level of get out, you're a female. Like I've never experienced that. What has happened now is there's a new group of, of males who are my contemporaries that have been raised, quote unquote, in a different environment as they themselves, 50% of their residency class may have been female. And so those people likely is because we are contemporaries and likely because we've earned respect working together, you know, are respectful. And, and I don't think see the male female difference as much as some of the older groups still do. And I don't think it's conscious. It's very much an unconscious bias. But, you know, I'll give you an example. When I was in general surgery residency, we used to get well, we still do even to this day. But back then, we used to get these written evaluations. And I distinctly remember my male counterparts had on their evaluation, need to work on the suture thing, you know, excellent technically, all these operating room things. And my evaluations were great with patients. Nurses love her. Actually, I can't remember an evaluation that had anything to do with my technical skills. Not bad, not good. They just, it just didn't come into the mind of the evaluator, interestingly, regardless of whether they were male or female. So you know, there's that that age old statement. It, I mean, this it's a riddle that they say, and I hope I don't screw it up here. But a, a father and son get into a car accident, and you know they end up coming to the uh, emergency department. The father dies, and then the surgeon comes to operate on the son and exclaims, "How how can I operate on this person? He's my son." And then the riddle is, "How can that be?" And me, I. I'm a, I'm a vascular surgeon. I'm a female. I've been through general surgery residency. I, when I heard this riddle, was like, oh, maybe he it was a gay relationship or maybe the father had an affair or maybe I didn't get the answer that the mom was the surgeon, you know? And so it just speaks to how deeply seated it's in the mind. And so it, it's hard to go and like challenge people, but at least bringing to the forefront that like there are these microaggressions that happen towards females. You know, I, I have experienced myself, done something, said something where a nurse will immediately go and complain to the superior about tone of voice. Whereas my male counterpart, and this is an age old story, I'm not saying anything novel here, but, you know, it makes it challenging because to your point earlier, surgery is a difficult field. It's a difficult world. And if I have a complication of bleeding, it needs to be that, hey, sometimes patients bleed. 
not that you're a girl, you can't operate. And I've definitely experienced the difference, you know, when a, a male colleague's patient may not do so well, oh, the patient was really sick. I'm sorry that you had to go through this. But in my case, it's, you should have done this. You should have done that. You know, this would have been a better way. Not wrong advice. It's just so jarring to see the difference. And so what that does to women and what that done to me is you have to be better, faster, stronger. You can't have those complications, which can be one of two things. One, you start to shy away from the more powerful cases for fear of having a complication and therefore being called out. And that has happened to a number of my female colleagues. Luckily, I think about that. It's in the consciousness of my mind. And I refuse. I'm not going down like that. <laughs> you know, it's been, it's been decades I've been doing this. I'm good at what I do. So what I do is the other extreme. Every case, I'm think, think, think about it. Go through it in my head. How would I do this? What would I do if this didn't work? The next step, the, this next step after that. And so I've managed to keep my complication rate low because everything is thought about, you know, a million times more than perhaps a counterpart. And it's exhausting to your use of the earlier word because it's everything on, and this is on top of that, but there's no way around it. And once there's a critical mass of women, maybe 50 years from now, maybe 75 years from now, maybe this issue will go away. But for right now, it definitely exists across the board, across the states. And I think it's a matter of time. And again, getting that critical mass of women. So women not getting driven away from academic because of all these exhausting extras and kind of sticking it out in the hopes that the next generation can benefit from your quote unquote, sticking it out. Yeah, it sounds exhausting. That really does. Uh, you, know, when you, you know, when you think you have to think about something and go through all the scenarios. I mean, that just sounds one of those things where it's an almost impossible thing to to keep doing. So I, I know that you've been selected for the presidential, was it called leadership? Yeah. Presidential Leadership Scholars. Yep. Yeah, you're one of the uh, Presidential Leadership Scholars. And so I'm interested to hear more about that. Uh, you know, oh, yeah. what it involves, clearly somebody thinks that you or a group of people, whoever committee has selected you as being a leader for the future or, or you have good leadership skills now. So yeah, I'd love to hear more about that. Certainly. Oh, thanks for asking about that. Yes. Um. So the Presidential Leadership Scholars Program is in its eighth year. And what it is, is President Clinton and both President Bushes basically came together to create this leadership program that focuses on kind of making America a country where all these different types of people can work together towards a common goal. Obviously, President Bush and President Clinton are, you know, Democrat, Republican. And, you know, to come together in this bipartisan way, it's not a political uh, agenda at all. It's more to create leaders, whether that be on the local level or on the global level. And what it is, is they select 60 people per year from any discipline across the United States who have a project that they're trying to accomplish. In my case, my project is that currently in the United States, there are five black legs amputated to every one white leg. And that has to do with, you know, initially when you hear that, people say, oh, it's racial disparities because, you know, African-Americans are sicker or, you know, they're, they don't go to the doctor enough or, you know, some nonsense. And actually, while there are some differences in terms of insurance and coverage and people going to the doctor and all that, really a big part of it is just standardization of care. And some of the unfortunate unconscious biases that come into play when a doctor sees a patient. And there is data that shows that when a doctor, regardless of race, sees a patient who is white, 
they are significantly more likely, up to four times more likely to try to save that leg than if they see a patient that is black. And again, this is not because the doctor's a jerk and like thinking, oh, I'm going to do these horrible things. It, it just plays out that way because there's kind of no oversight. And, and so my whole project is about kind of eradicating that difference, focusing on the legislative level. Because if you said, hey, we're not going to reimburse for any amputation that does not go through X, Y, and Z, suddenly you take it off the doctor's plate to make a unilateral decision about how they're going to treat the patient. So that's what my project is on. And I, I wrote a big essay about that. And of course, I was interviewed by both people from President Clinton's group and President Bush, and then was selected. And so what happens is we do six modules, one week per month for six months, where uh, the program takes us to different locations, DC, Little Rock, Dallas, Austin, Philadelphia, and we learn how to lead in a diverse group of people. And I'm not talking diverse on race, that's of course part of it, but diversity of thought specifically. Well, how do you get that Trump supporter in a room with Bernie Sanders supporters and get them behind a common goal, making the baseline assumption that people are good. And that's really what the, the program is all about. So how do you do that? Well, the, the focus has been on kind of communication, but not in the airy-fairy sense, but in the truly nitty-gritty sense. What I mean by that is got to have those tough conversations. What's happening in America today is that people are shying away from those conversations because of fear. You know, we have a cancel culture. We know that already. We also have people who speak out of turn completely uneducated and, and in an arrogant, uh, in ignorant sense. And that makes it very difficult. You know, when you're sitting in front of somebody who spouts something that is completely factually incorrect, but has a baseline you know, decision to make. The human nature reaction is to say, hey, screw you. You're not part of my in-group. Get away from me. I hate you. And we have to overcome that urge and sit with these opposing parties to figure out why they think the way they think. And then on their level, start to change the way. And, and you'd be shocked how much you can learn from the opposing party, make an assumption that someone says something ignorant, you know, but actually when you start listening to them, people are driven by their life experiences. And guess what? They may have experienced something that makes what they're saying not untrue in that particular scenario. And if you understand that, you can at least come to some sort of compromise about the issue at hand. If I hate you because you don't think the way I think, but we're trying to solve the like, you know, budget crisis in the United States, like your views on LGBTQ issues, your views on women, your views on do they play into the budget? Not directly. So can we work together to solve this issue just because we disagree so fundamentally on a social issue? The answer is yes, you can, because humans are complex. And so the, the way that the program is working is by kind of breaking down that and forcing, at least me personally, to consciously think. So when I'm faced with somebody that I'm like, oh, God, I don't want to hear what you have to say. I stop myself and I'm like, no, I do. I do. Tell me what you are trying to say and then tell me why without fear of retribution and without fear of me attacking you and canceling you and saying that you're less than a human. What it sounds like is you're being mindful of what this person is saying, because when you pay attention to what they're saying, you know, like you said, you can learn something. Maybe what they're actually going to say is is useful. What what other things that have you picked up along the way from that in terms of leadership? Be interested to know. Yeah, I, mean, well, I think this idea of like leading does not mean that you are 
even though this sounds kind of intuitive, leading does not mean that you are the boss. Leading means that people want to follow, as in they decide that you're inspirational and that they want to do what you're saying and that you have their best interest in mind and that you have the wherewithal and the intelligence to take data, synthesize it and make a decision that is in everyone's best interest. And if it's not in everyone's best interest, communicate why in, you know, for today, hey, I'm going to make a choice that's going to hurt Marjorie, but benefit Bill. This is why I chose to do it in this particular circumstance and how this is going to come back and, you know, the transparency element of it. And again, these are not like, like when people, when I say this stuff, people nod, it makes sense. Oh yeah, that makes sense. But like to actually have it as a part of your way of being is challenging. And I think for me, at least the most challenging thing is to let people finish talking. It's very difficult because people do like to hear themselves talk. And I get the irony of me saying that as I'm literally listening to myself talk. But, um, you know, people will, when they're making a point to you, will start to speak in a circular fashion, reiterate what they're trying to tell you. And interestingly, as a surgeon, you know, even when I'm just lying in bed on a Sunday, which I don't remember the last time that happened, but let's pretend I am, you know, I'm still in that mindset of like, go, 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 go. So anything that I perceive as a waste of my time, which would be somebody speaking in circular logic or somebody, you know, not just spitting out what they want to say, I tend to just dismiss and move on. And learning to not do that by actively listening, but also being able to direct the conversation such that I'm not sitting in my office listening to a bunch of people just whine, which is also not leadership. That's actually, I mean, they could just do that with a stuffed animal. You know, you have to actively engage and challenge, but not in a way that shuts them down. It's hard. And those are all things that, and it's interesting, this course is not saying this is how you do it. It's giving you the framework in which you would go on to do it. Um, and there are times when it doesn't apply. Like I'm in the operating room. The patient has come in with a gunshot wound to the, to the belly and they're bleeding out. I am not interested you know, this person's opinion and that person's opinion. And that's not the time, you know, my anesthesiologist might come over the curtain and say, Hey, listen, blood pressure is dropping. And I might make a split. Oh, okay. Hold on. Let's put our finger on the hole, give a bunch of blood and catch up. Yes. Very good. Fast. But you know, if my anesthesiologist pokes over the, the drape and says, Hey, I'm so sorry to bother you. Like, I know this is not a good time, but I'm like, Oh my God, say it. Just say it, you know, but that's not the communication that I would have if someone's had an issue with a colleague and they're coming in to have a discussion about that. That's a very different scenario. And being able to understand that and change leadership styles and agendas based on the situation is something I'm learning to do through this program. So for the other 59 people who've been selected, what kind of uh, backgrounds do they have? Oh, it's incredibly diverse. So some people are working on a local level. There's a colleague of mine who actually has got a uh, nonprofit where she helps trafficked girls in Dallas. Um, another colleague of mine used to be in the film industry and now has started an app called Hadley. It's an app that basically uh, allows you to pick your five to nine plan, which is the plan that students can use to pay their student loans. It's like Venmo, basically, but for money that would go to your student loans and to your education. Um, I've got other colleagues that want one works at Coke. One is a, a guy from the CDC who is a doctor, but um, isn't practicing so much as a physician, but does a lot of work with the environment. And so just really, truly diverse in every way. Which is what, again, makes the program special in that, first of all, you have a network with all these people. Like, I would never cross paths with any of these human beings. It's interesting. They're all lovely people. And I think that's the underlying theme, you know, trying to make the world a better place. 
And it's interesting, just to give an example, you know, you have the nonprofit sector and you, you have people who are like big corporations, horrible, you know, and then you, hey, here they are sitting at a table with someone from the deepest bowels of corporate America, who actually is a great person and who's sitting on millions and millions of dollars where they, you know, and, and for making jobs for people and they get to see each other's point. And tomorrow when this guy goes back to his corporation and they're talking about where the money's going, he'll think of the colleague he just met. And when the nonprofit person, you know, is sitting with their colleagues and talking about how terrible corporations are, he'll be thinking of that person. And like, that's how you build a better world, right? So that that's, those are the kinds of people that are in this program. And then there's me. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds so interesting in terms for me is that, you know, when you get to network with people with different backgrounds or you get to know people of different backgrounds, you get an insight into what the corporation thinking is like. And so then you can bring that back to, you know, your nonprofit, not in the terms of, of adopting that style, but that when you have to go and present, let's say, you know, to these big corporate giants, you have an idea how to do that. You have an idea what they're looking for. That's how I would look at it. I think that's really good. And also, you know, when we talk about diversity, it's not just the color of one's skin. It can be, you know, neurodiversity. It can be, you know, physical disabilities as well. You know, it's everything. And as well as um, this cohort that you're in, that it's from all different backgrounds and walks of life. It sounds a bit like the MacArthur Genius Awards. So, something like that, or like how like they form a cohort in like business school or like, you know, the idea that the network is just as important as the content and how you get that content delivered and how you process it is based on the network around you. If I had only physicians, for example, in this group, I would not be able to get as much out of even what I'm learning because all the framework would be in the hospital. Like we'd be all talking about the hospital, that all our examples would be from the hospital and about patients. And there's something to that as well, but not for this kind of higher level thinking, I think. And the, the idea of this cohort is that if you look at it, it's just America. Like it's every type of person. And again, down to the beauty of it is that they're not lazy in how they've executed. A lot of the uh, initiatives, I mean, you know, for example, the DEI initiatives, um, I myself am a woman of color and, you know, we, we see this sort of people ticking a box. There's a laziness to it. And that laziness is what then causes more problems because when you, when you're not intentional and you're not specific about what outcome you want, you end up having unintended consequences. And that unfortunately keeps happening because people don't really know even what exactly to do in that framework. And so here, when they when they said we want a diverse cohort, they really made it in every facet and took the time to do that. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. And uh, one thing that you, you were talking about was networking. And I'm interested to know how you found out about the JCSW and how long you've been a member. And also for me, and I know for others, the JCSW is like a fantastic networking opportunity because I would never have been able to talk to someone like you. I would never have been able to, you know, meet other people and make good friends through the JCSW had I not, you know, been a member and enjoy 
the meetings and and things like that. So I'm I'm interested to hear your um, your experience. No, certainly. Um, so I, you know, as a member of the MGH community and of course Harvard's community, um, we get the emails from uh, Harvard, and one of them was from this group, and it was an opportunity to join exactly to to network with other women who are part of this diverse community, and you know, learn from each other and and be able to to have a network that was outside just the hospital. And so I signed up, and then uh, beyond that, started to get you know the invites and kind of learn a little bit. And I think that's usually how most of these processes go. You don't exactly know what you're doing when you first sign up. And then as you get exposed exactly to your point, here we are having this wonderful conversation um, that ho- that hopefully has some reach. And so uh, every year we we have an opportunity to get, you know, higher in leadership positions as well and be on committees. And this is another opportunity to advance that way by getting on a committee that also has something directly to do with me. So that's how I kind of got involved and have stayed involved for now three years. And um, are you a member of one of the subcommittees? I am. Um, and I'm also, well, because of, again, the work schedule, <laughs> um, it's challenging to make any sort of meeting that takes place during the daylight hours, right? And a lot of our meetings are. So while being a part of the committee at this point, really most of my input is done via email or you know out of hours kind of saying, oh, by the way, I think this or that, or the committees that have dedicated times after about five o'clock, that's been what I've been able to engage in primarily. But as now I get higher in the ranks and have a little bit more control on my schedule, I think I'm going to certainly this coming year be engaging more so on the leadership level to see if I can steer some new people through as well. Um, and then getting the word out in our MGH community, that's another big piece of this community. Oh, yeah. You're part of the community engagement, correct? Right. What do you wish people knew about your position that they wouldn't ordinarily know? I think the the most important thing nowadays in 2023 is that I wish that people knew how the American healthcare system currently is unhealthy in and of itself. That's what I wish people knew. There's no exact fix. There's no exact problem. It's not like if you increase Medicare or if you decrease Medicare or if you hire more doctors, if you open a new med school, none of these band-aids will work. There's a fundamental problem where even today, if you have a tummy ache, you better saddle up for a six-hour ER visit. Forget the bill and everything, just your time. You want to talk to your primary care doctor about XYZ? Good luck getting an appointment. You went to go see a doctor because you had a heart attack and you now need your prescription filled. Maybe it will, maybe it won't, because the nurse practitioner that was going to fill it, it missed, you know, in this box and that box. And ultimately you're making phone calls and you can't get a person. And this is not specific at all to any hospital. I have trained at the Medical College of Wisconsin. I trained at Stanford. I'm not uh, Mass General. I do some satellite work at a New Hampshire hospital. I mean, I'm all over the place. So I know that this is a like national issue and it's not because your doctors don't love you. This is what I want people to know. And it's not because we got into this, you know, for the money or anything. And believe me, that's <laughs> not why anyone gets into medicine. It's because we love our patients and we want to do right by you. And we hurt when you hurt, especially when it's something logistical that we may not necessarily have control over. I'll give you a clear-cut example, we all get rated a little bit like Uber drivers 
with stars based on how the service was provided to a patient, which is weird to even say, but you know, patient does well, outcome is good. You get, you know, bedside manner is good. Everything I control done well, five stars, five stars. But then part of that rating is time it took to see the doctor. Oh, it was six months, two stars. Hey, when I was in hospital, I wanted the red jello. You told me I could have it, but the menu didn't come in time, two stars. And I don't, I mean, I, I wish I could sit here and tell you I don't care about the stars. I mean, we have to, that's, that's how it works, unfortunately. I mean, I don't inherently care, but I, I have to because of the system. But what I, I do care about is that patients are clearly not having a good experience. And we can even say, sadly, a good quote, consumer experience, since ultimately medicine is a business in the United States of America and people make money from your illness, um, right or wrong. That's a whole nother story. I went to medical school in the UK and I have seen the NHS, which is the nationalized healthcare system. So I could sit here for three hours and tell you all the things wrong with that as well. So I'm not advocating for one side or another. There are definitely pros and cons on both sides in terms of quality, in terms of time to seeing a doctor, in terms of, you know, holding the doctors accountable. But I do want my patients to know that, you know, we love you very much. And as the healthcare system takes us further and further away from you, because of billing and computers and notes and all these things, we're sorry. And we're trying to fight it on the legislative level, but, you know, bear with us. And uh, unlike the olden days where you're waiting for that call back after you call the, the doctor, nowadays patients, you have to take it upon yourselves. You made a phone call for a drug. You didn't get it. You're supposed to get a prescription, make another call because that phone call you're waiting for may never come because something fell through the cracks because the system is just too overstressed. It sounds really frustrating and sad. Mm -hmm. And the also, as you were saying, the ratings, it, it almost sounds like, you know, the Amazon ratings. Yeah. But also, you know, when you look at them, there's always somebody who says, oh, my God, it came, didn't come in time. It should have been here. And it, they've given it one star. And it's, you know, really reviewing the thing, you know, you want to buy the blender or something. You, you're reviewing Amazon yeah. service or something. So it speaks to your what you were saying about the the menu or something that they didn't have any of the red jello, you know, and they really wanted the green or, or whatever whatever it was, you know, then you give it two stars. That's not really reflective of your of you as the surgeon. Right, right. And to some extent that's also difficult, you know, if you rate bedside manner, you rate but medicine is a weird situation between the doctor and patient because the doctor knows so much about the problem and the patient is coming in and trusting essentially a stranger with the most intimate of intimate things. And so there's a very clear difference in the power dynamic. And it's hard to then turn around and ask the patient. I mean, it's, it's a little bit like asking students to rate the teacher. If you are in math class and your teacher shouts at you because you show up late and you didn't do your homework, then if you ask that student to rate the teacher, even though they've learned so much because the teacher was so strict, you know, they give that teacher one star because they hate him. You know, like it's a weird and, and you can do that if you want, but you also have to then acknowledge the situation that has arisen. I have a partner who was, we were just talking about this. He got rated low because the patient loved him, but the patient couldn't find parking on the day of their procedure which is a problem. I mean, of course, you're getting stressed out. You're coming in for a big neck surgery or whatever, and you can't find a parking spot. I mean, we all know that's like hor horrible. You go, to, you go to Whole Foods and you can't find a parking spot. You freak out, let alone, you know. But what is he going to do? And if that's not going to reflect 
online to say, hey, this is not a good doctor. That's a problem. You know, and I, I don't know what the answer is. I mean, on the one hand, you, you patients shouldn't have to think about that stuff and they need to rate things badly to say, hey, you need another parking structure, but probably not on the form that rates doctor, but that's the only form you get. How was your experience? Which is kind of a, a weird thing to say in the medical profession. So, I mean, I guess, you know, to your earlier question as to like what I want patients to know is that, you know, there is this complex system and uh, we would love, you know, to hand in hand solve this with you. But it's not simplistic. It's not just insurance companies are bad. It's never that simplistic. It's very much a complex issue, but it can be solved. We're humans, for God's sake. You know, we've gone to the moon. We can solve this. You just need the right people with the right agenda, sitting in a room, making these decisions and having the power to execute them. So two questions that I've been asking people is what's one professional skill that you would like to work on or are working on? And one's what is one personal skill that you would like to work on or are working on? Sure. Um, from a professional angle, I am always uh, working on my leadership skills because I'm, I, as I get higher and higher in the, the ranks, I have more and more people who I hope would like to follow the type of change I'm trying to lead and learning how to balance, you know, living my, my life, doing my, my job for my patients and the community, but simultaneously having time to help those who are part of my group. I'm working on that. And, and that's going to be a lifelong thing, you know, watching other leaders who are successful, watching ones that are not, and being able to start to apply it and see what works and what doesn't. Also recognizing that it's different. You know, my, my male partner can get away with sometimes just being very, what, what I would perceive as very curt, very sharp. And it's okay. Um, people sort of, ah, ha, ha, you know, that's fine. I cannot. And again, it's not a matter of fair or not fair. It's a matter of society and society's perceptions. You know, there was that book by Sheryl Sandberg, Lean In, and she kind of alludes to this phenomenon of like the women being perceived as like maternal. So if you're, you know, for lack of a better word, yelling at someone because they did something wrong, even if you're right, they will be jarred by the fact that you're yelling in your tone of voice with your female, you know, vocal cords. And if a man kind of says, hey, shut up, the same thing you just said, it's sort of not accepted is not the right word, but I don't think it's as striking as when women do it. And that's, I think, why we get reported more. We get, you know, admonished more. We get because it bites sharper for some reason. And that, again, that's not wrong or right. It, that is what it is. And so being able to understand these things and work within the system to be successful, that's what I'm, I'm working on professionally. Personally, I am absolutely working on listening more to my family who definitely goes to the wayside. Um, I keep thinking to myself, ah, you know, my son is two and my daughter is five. I got all the time in the world. I mean, I know consciously that's not the case. I definitely take on a lot more things than I probably quote unquote have to. My patients have my cell phone number and, you know, that sounds very noble and very nice. And it is to some extent, but it is extreme. It's also very intrusive and unnecessary. Patients don't necessarily need to have your cell phone number, you know? And so I'm working on striking that balance. I don't want to say work-life balance. That's not exactly what I mean. I mean, just more being able to know what my boundaries are 
personally and not thinking of that personal boundary as a weakness, which is definitely how I was raised and what I do perceive when, you know, oh, I'm going to, I have to work on Sunday. I got to get this case done. Ah, it's my daughter's birthday party. Mm, How do I, you know, instead of just being like, you know what, no one's going to die if I just do this case tomorrow, (laughs) you know, and sort of working on that uh, personally. We'll see how that goes. Is there anything else that you would like to work on? You know, something, you know, fun? I think, you know, I am one of those really blessed people where my job is fun, as cliche as that sounds. I mean, it has to be, right? There's no way that I would be sitting here, you know, unbathed for two days, (laughs) loving to operate if it wasn't fun. So I'm so lucky. You know, when I do sit and listen to my colleagues, and even my husband, who's not a doctor, he runs a data analytics company. But, you know, sitting in those meetings, just droning on and on. Oh, my God, I would like, I couldn't, I couldn't do it, you know. So I don't have anything particular that I am not doing, which is one of, I, I feel one of the benefits and beauties of my life is that I feel I'm really, I'm exactly where I need to be right now. I'll be 40 this year. I've done the things I want to do. And I, I have aspirations for the next decade and the decade after. Um, so there's there's nothing really particular. I want to make sure that uh, my kids are raised well, good humans. That's obviously a, also a work in progress. And if they turn out not to be good humans, I will blame my husband's genetics. So it won't be my fault either way. It's yeah. <laughs> a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it sounds like for you, you know, like I was sort of thinking about, well, you know, you being in surgery, it's like a bit like you being, you know, a farmer in the field. They're doing what they they're like born to do. You know, that, mm-hmm. that's the thing that they like doing. And so from what you were saying, it sounds like, you know, you're saying that this is the best job in the world. I'm so lucky to have it. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. I, I really, really feel that way. And within surgery, I feel vascular is the best job in the world. I mean, it's so cool. <laughs> Not for lack of a better. So, and, and you want to have that, right? That excitement. I mean, you get called. If someone's waking you up at 3 a.m. in the morning, believe me, it needs to be something super cool. And it tends to be. So I, I do agree with you. I think that is, that's what I'll say, you know, to the women out there that like, because it can be, to your point, of course, earlier as well, you know, I, when you're operating, you're operating, you're, you're, you're scrubbed, you're sterile, you're in the zone. For the most part, no one's really bothering you. But then you do step back into the real world and your gun and gloves come off and there's some microaggression or something unfair happens or you get passed up for a promotion or you get a demotion because, you know, someone feels someone else should get it. And it can be very hard to just keep going. And that's the beauty of my job, though. Like sometimes when those situations do arise, there's always a surgery right around the corner to remind me why I'm in this in the first place. Again, I've come back to my kids. I use that as an example. You know, my son has developed this thing where he like uh, he's potty training. So he's thought to himself that if he needs to poop, he should poop on himself and then sit on the toilet. So it's like double the work for me, because not only has he completely pooped in his pants, he then spreads it all over the toilet seat. But you know what? that and that sucks but then i'm playing with him or you know we're watching bubble guppies or something and he giggles and we play and then it's like totally worth it and surgery is very similar to that i got my my poop on the seat that i have to clean up sometimes and then i right around the corner i've got my awesome procedure where i really get to help people you know and um 
really get to enjoy the relationship I form with these people and their families and truly can't give you an explanation. You know, a little bit when astronauts talk, they tell about that feeling when they see Earth for the first time and and only they really know what they're talking about. It's the same thing with surgery. There's a sensation that you can only really experience if you are, I think, in that position. And that's what you spend your whole life chasing, that feeling. It's a, it sounds to me like it's, a, it's like the flow state. You know, it's like that feeling when you're so into something that you're only just focused on what you're doing then mm-hmm. and there. And time just goes away. You, you oh, know, yeah. it just goes by so fast. It sounds like that's, that's what you're saying. You're in this flow state. Like you said, you're in the zone mm-hmm. and there's nothing better than being in that zone. Yeah. Oh, totally. And working towards it. I mean, that, that's actually a very, very common phenomenon. We go into surgery, operate, operate, operate. And you look up, it's one o'clock. You look back up, it's six o'clock. You're like, oh. And then at the end of however long that is, you take your gun and gloves off and suddenly you really need to pee and you're starving and you're, but you just like five minutes ago, didn't even realize it. And this is not some like when this is every time, you know, when you're in it. So yeah, I think that's exactly the right description of the full state. Okay, great. Thank you. This has been uh, fantastic. It's Thank you. so great to hear about you and your work and your life as a surgeon. It's, it, it's always so fascinating to me um, how surgeons Oh, I won't make a bad pun and say yeah, operate. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> Is there anything else that you would like to say? No, I think you covered it all. I think it's been fantastic. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. For agreeing to do this. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. <laughs> I'm excited. Let me know when this uh, comes out. 